Father, we're grateful for this time together to to stop and to ask big questions about your identity and who you are and to wrestle with that in light of the revelation of your own of your own name. Um, you haven't left us in the dark and, and we're grateful for that, Father. And we ask us this, we ask you this morning that you will bless the teacher and the hearers that all of us together, Lord, would have our hearts and our minds lifted up to the glory of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I had a... Um, so last week, if you, if you remember, we, had, uh, we spent time with Moses at the burning bush, which is an incredible story, isn't it, where Moses has this divine encounter. I had one of these sort of providential encounters this week. Um where my phone rang and I had a conversation with one of you. I'll, I'll leave you unnamed, but you know who you are. Um, and talking about this kind of experiential encounter. And, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm still learning the DNA of Advent Cathedral. and you, you, I know some of you, but I don't, I don't know many of you. Uh, but, you know, I think we all wrestle with where to put experience and these kind of experiential encounters into the, into the drawer, into our file cabinet of, of our faith. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a world, and I don't know what world you grew up in. Some of your, I mean, this may be your world. I, I come from a, a free, low church kind of background. And there was a sense in which, you know, having, having a powerful testimony, you know, the person who was converted out of drugs and all of that, I mean, that was, that was the stuff that, you know, if you're going to pass the offering plates and get some money, that, that was the time to do it. Um, so there was a lot of value placed on that kind of, conversion experiential story and I wouldn't I wouldn't ever want to downplay that and so in some sense that's quite quite powerful and and we see that through the history of the church don't we where people had these incredible encounters like St. Augustine uh, you know you know the story about St. Augustine don't you where um, he was wrestling with the faith um, he was coming out of sort of a Manichaean philosophical world and, and in passionate pursuit for truth started to go listen to Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, really because Ambrose knew how to turn a phrase. I mean, rhetoric was prized in that period of, of, of um, really the history of ideas, the history of the world. And, uh, and so um, he was in his house, and he, he, out in his garden, and he heard some child saying, tole lege, tole lege. You've heard this story, right? Take up and read. Which he thought was a child's game, but he took it as a word from the Lord, and he opened up the Bible and, um, and he read Romans 13, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, the scales began to fall from my eyes. You know, John Wesley has a similar experience. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of people who have these kind of experiences. Um, and, I, and those are valued. But there's a lot of people who don't. And I think one of the things that's happened to me, now that I have three children, and really recognizing as well that this is, this is my own testimony in a way, as I, I hope that, not in any way, want to downplay that those powerful experiential encounters, but at the same time, you know, for my for my boys, what I what I pray, what I hope their story is, is um, I grew up in the church, and there was never a time when I didn't trust Jesus. I, I can't remember a time when I didn't trust Jesus. I, that's a that's a great testimony. Um, so you know, measuring these things in these are, are really difficult because. And I and, and I again, we can debate this if you'd like to, and I'm, I'm happy to have some go around on this because it might sharpen my own thinking. But um, 
But we, you know, we don't judge doctrine and truth by our experiences. In, in many ways, actually, it goes in the adverse. Never to downplay experiences. It's very important. The Holy Spirit is alive and well. Right. But we have to also recognize that it's really the revelation of God in Jesus as witnessed to in the Holy Scriptures that should shape the ways in which we kind of engage our experiences as well. Um, because what do you do? Even for those of you who have had these kind of incredible encounters with God, which are to be valued. It's a gift to you. Thank you, Lord, for that, right? But what do you do in those moments when the sky turns into brass or you go into what the um, Desert Fathers would call the dark night of the soul, which I'm sure many of you have experienced in your journey of faith. I mean, what's it, what, what do we do? Where do we, where do we put that? I haven't seen a burning bush for a really long time. I haven't even seen any smoke. <laughs> um, I mean, what, where, do we, where do we put that? Those are the moments, really, right? And which I think, you know, the kind of quotidian, um, prosaic, every day I think about this in, in terms of, you know, our home, the diaper-changing side of life, right? That's just every day, the, the grist and the mill. That, that really is where we have to begin to talk to ourselves, and this is one of the gifts of your liturgy that you have in your own tradition, where we have to begin to talk to ourselves and tell ourselves the gospel again and again when it just doesn't seem to be ringing true, right? Or my experiences don't seem to be lining up with that at this particular moment. Um, Moses was Moses. And he had, he had a special relationship with God, as we're going to see today, face to face. And the apostles had these kind of encounters as well. But as one of the leading theologians of the 20th century, a mentor, a dead mentor for me, Brevard Child said, it's good to be reminded every once in a while that we're not prophets and apostles. We're, we're not those. Um, we stand on the shoulders or we stand underneath the authority canonically of the prophets and the apostles and, and we allow that to shape the way in which we view the world. And that's really part and parcel of our time together in, this, in these th- short three weeks is to wrestle with and to, and, to, and to pursue after that kind of question, God, who are you? And when our experiences collide with that reality, how then do we continue to press on in faith and in hope that who you said you are will will be true even when that doesn't just seem to be lining up with where I am right now? Um, This is, you know, I I throw that out there to you because um, one of the great problems of the Reformation, you know, we talked last week about Luther and the Reformation in, in part being the genesis of Luther's passionate pursuit to find a God that he could love. Part and parcel of that particular pursuit is the issue of assurance. How can I be assured that God loves me? How can I be assured that his love's not capricious? That he's not going to, you know, like the daisy, he loves me, he loves me not. This is a really bad joke. Forgive me. Um, But you know what the Calvinist flower is, right? The Calvinist flower is the, oh, this is not going to go well. But I'm in. I'm in. I can't pull back. The Calvinist flower is a tulip. You know, I've you heard this before, total depravity, unconditional election, the tulip Calvinist. And the, and the Arminian flower is, the, um, is the, uh, the daisy. You know, he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. I knew it wasn't going to go well. I knew it wasn't going to go well. Um, but, I mean, this is, this is, I think, one of the things that we wrestle with, don't we, is whether or not God's love is it's capricious. Um. Is, is he really good? You remember that encounter that the, the beavers in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, 
had when they began to describe Aslan, who's this allegorical figure of Jesus. And they asked about Aslan, and they said, well, tell us about him. And I think Mr. Beaver said something like, he's good, but he's not safe. Um, and I think you all who have gone along this journey long enough to know begin to realize he is good. As we heard Canon Pearson say this morning, say this morning, he, he um, you know, once he, once he puts his call on you, once he puts his love on you, it, 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 you, you can't pull back. It, it sees through it to the end. But what do you do when that's not necessarily how you feel? And this is, this is, the, real, this is the real difficulty. Believing that God is who He says He is, even when it just doesn't seem to be that way. And, and can I tell you something? I, and I don't know how you feel about this. I, I wrestle with the whole piety thing. I do. That's a, that's a deep personal struggle that I continue to, in my own journey of faith that I wrestle with. How do I understand piety? What does it mean to follow after Jesus on a personal level and in community? I mean, this is a, this is a big question. Um, but I think I, I, I probably would have told you 10 years ago but people are at the pinnacle of their faith when they're having those kind of mountaintop experiences. I've had them, and I'm sure some of you have had them as well, and they're incredible. They're a gift. I mean, I am communing with God in a way that I have never communed before. It is sweet when that happens. Um, but I'm also coming to believe that I think really, not the pinnacle of faith, but the gravitas of faith, the substance of faith, of this journey of faith is, is when you're down there in the valley living daily life and not really not not really able to extract yourself from the hustle and bustle of of living but in the middle of that being able to being able to tell yourself the truth by the gift of the holy spirit um there's a line in this in song of solomon i don't know if you've read this before song of solomon is what i read when i was a teenager in church when i got bored because all the salacious stuff in there um um, I knew enough about biblical imagery to, to know I liked that book. Um, but, you know, there's that line in there where, where, where the, it says, One glance from my lover made my heart flitter. Um, and we think about that romantically. The history of the church and the rabbinic tradition of reading Song of Solomon has been on a figural, allegorical level. I, I wouldn't want to deny that. I think that's actually an important reading. So if we think about that kind of relationship between Israel and Yahweh, between the church and our triune God, one and the same, I mean, just these glances back and forth, it's that kind of communion that He loves us, He knows us, and even when we don't experience it, we follow after it. That, that, that's the kind of stuff that I think gets you through. Um, so I don't know what that, that, that happened to me this week, and I've been thinking about it. But I want to continue, again, because we're not Moses, we're not apostles and prophets, but continue with this kind of encounter that Moses had. And if you come to Exodus chapter 20, and I, I don't, uh, you, no Bibles, I'll read it to you. Um, you. You know Exodus 20, we're in the Decalogue, so now we're getting the Ten Commandments. And here's, here's what they are. Here's the, here's the first one, I'm the Lord your God. It all flows from this. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? You shall have no other gods before me. Period. I mean, that, that's like, you know, the two tables of the law: love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. That that, that that's the two tables of the law: the sort of the, the, the vertical and the horizontal. You remember when they asked Jesus, "Tell us what the most important law is," and Jesus said, um, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind." And they're like, he, "He's answered well." But then Jesus went on to say, "And the second is like unto it: You shall." Remember this? Love your neighbor as yourself. 
I mean, isn't it interesting? What I love about that narrative is, isn't it interesting that they didn't ask Jesus what the second commandment was? They, they, they want to know what the first one was. But Jesus thought it so important to put these two together that he said, and the second is likened to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you can't have number one without number two. They're like a photo finish. And you've, you've got enough Olympics in you now probably to have seen some of these photo finishes. You can't see gold medalists without silver medalists in the same view uh, without on these photo finishes. They're the same thing. Love the Lord your God, yes, and love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot have the one, one without the other. And this is, this is the Decalogue. It's broken up in that way. Loving God and then loving people. You know, don't steal. Don't, don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Um, and and, and, and don't, don't murder. And so you have this going on, but it begins with the, with the vertical. You shall have no other gods before me. And if we could step back and see the whole history of Israel's encounter with Yahweh in the Old Testament, it is a, a mad and difficult and lover's quarrel over this commandment right here. I, I'm going to love you. You are my wife, but I don't share my marital bed. I mean, this is this is what Yahweh says to his bride Israel. I don't share my I don't share my marital bed. So you, you're going to love me, and if you love me, let me listen to what he says. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, which shows the purpose of making these images. It's not, I wouldn't say it's images per se. Why? Because we see already within the book of Exodus itself that Moses made a bronze serpent, didn't he? And that bronze serpent was a physical statue of some sort that Moses made that was the product, you know, produced their, their healing if they were to look to that. So I, w- I think we need to be careful and not say it's not images just simpliciter, stripped down to nothing else, but it's images that are made, verse 5, for the purpose of bowing down to worship them. Why? And here's again this revelation of who God is. Because I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. <laughs> He's jealous. He's jealous for His lover. He's jealous for us. I'm a jealous God. And I punish the children for the iniquity of their parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me. But I show steadfast love to the thousandth generation. See that? So two generations, third, three generations, four generations. But my steadfast love goes to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandment. So here we have in the Decalogue really a presentation that's rather binary, isn't it? In other words, I'm a jealous God. I've brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I've elected you. I've claimed you as my own. There's a responsibility on you in light of that reality. And here's the deal. You go this way and you don't follow other gods and and I will... It's going to be great. Land with milk and honey. I mean, the the relationship, it will be great. My, My chesed, my love, will go on to the thousandth generation if you follow in that way. But you go this way and you follow after idols and then you're going to meet my wrath. So here's, again, remember the sort of overview title of our series. It's the mercy and the severity of of God. And and, and that's what you see right here in a very sort of binary, equal way. He's merciful, yes, and He's severe. And there you have it. Either one or the other. That's it. But the narrative of Exodus is so fascinating because as it moves on, this gets tested, right? How is this actually going to get worked out in a live encounter between Israel and Yahweh? How's it going to get worked out? How are we going to see this sort of fleshed out in the real? Because we know, don't we? I mean, we know not at the end of the story, but 
God knew too. I mean, they're sinners. They're, they're, they're sinners. And boy, you don't have to read much of the Old Testament to realize that that, boy, there's a lot of rated R stuff there in, in the Old Testament. I mean, it's um, because there's a lot of sin there. So here, here you have it, either this or that. And then we come to one of my favorite stories in the Bible, probably you too, the golden calf, chapter 32 of Exodus. Now, I'm not going to read all this to you. If you don't mind, I'm going to paraphrase it. But what happens in chapter 32 of Exodus? Moses goes up to the mountain. He's communing with God face to face, which we're going to see a little bit later what that means when God reveals Himself to Moses. But he's communing. He's getting the Decalogue. And while Moses is up on Sinai and Joshua is somewhere in the middle sort of keeping watch on things up there, what goes on down in the valley? Well, down there at the camp, they come and they say, we need a God. They come to Aaron. They say that. And Aaron demands something high of them, which the rabbis actually think. One of the ways the rabbis get away from the difficulty of Aaron, who's the head of the priestly tribe, right? So this is a priest to the Lord who's fashioning an idol. One of the ways they, would get, they kind of get away from the, the, the force of that is to say, you see what he's asking of them? He's asking of them their best, their jewelry, their gold, I mean, all of their worldly possessions that would be of value, that's what he's asking for. He, he, I was reading actually this this morning from a commentator. He knew they wouldn't do it. That, that's the sort of read that the rabbis give on this. But um, I don't know. I mean, that's not what the narrative says. That's, that's a classic sort of midrash. I mean, they're sort of filling in some tension to try to alleviate something. But I don't know. I mean, Aaron says, you know, give me your stuff. And he melts it down and they make a golden calf. And this golden calf, which we know in a little bit, Aaron, what is Aaron going to tell Moses when, when Moses has this sort of face-to-face with Aaron? I threw the, you remember this? I threw the stuff in and pff, I'll pop this calf, right? Um, well, we know that they made a mold. I mean, there's it's a little bit of, you know, a little bit of spin going on there, Aaron. Um, but, but here, you know, they, they, this calf comes out, which was, you know, a representative of a god from Egypt. So the, a golden calf was not a, a foreign idea to the Israelites about another God. And listen to what Aaron says. This might surprise you. They say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It could be, This is your God, O Israel. Remember Elohim, the Hebrew term, there's a plural one. And how, how one reads, I mean, this is, it's, it gets a little bit tricky. These are your gods, which kind of be a polytheistic, polytheistic kind of reading. Or maybe this is your God. That's a legitimate reading on the Hebrew here. This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And listen to how Aaron uh, accounts this. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, this might surprise you, tomorrow shall be a festival to Yahweh. They rose early the next morning. They burnt, offered burnt offerings. and brought... Do you see what was going on there? Right? I mean, it's not just the kind of, it's not your father's idolatry going on here. This is um, an idol, a representation that they're bowing down to worship. And who are they worshiping? Who's Aaron saying that we're going to worship? Yahweh. Right. I mean, and this is, this is a no-go from the Decalogue. You can't do that. You don't build an image to worship Yahweh. Right. And, um, and so what happens? Well, um, verse 7. This, this is troubling. The Lord said to Moses... So here they are communing. Go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. 
you know, pronouns are a big deal. Possessive pronouns, especially in, in the Old Testament. Did you hear how he, the turn of phrase here? Go down to your people, right? Who you brought up out of the land of Egypt. I mean, can you imagine? Now, this is me doing my own midrash. I'm filling in, and I shouldn't do this because the narrative doesn't say anything. But can you imagine? I mean, I, you'd want to say something like, you remember that burning bush? Who, who, who's your people, right? <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, I mean, this, this is the same thing that happens in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah has his encounter with Yahweh in the throne room. And a classic prophetic bait and switch. God does this. I mean, he does this to his prophets. He says, um, you know, Isaiah says, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I've seen the Lord. And, and the coal goes on his lips. He's purified. And then he hears God in his own divine counsel saying, who's going to go for us? And what, is, what does Isaiah do? He steps up and he says, I'll go. Here I am, send me. Now, when I grew up, you know, that's where the, typically the exposition of Isaiah 6 stopped. That's good stuff. Here I am, send me, sing a hymn, feel good about that, and go home. Now we'll all go serve Jesus. But there's more to Isaiah 6, isn't there? Because then Isaiah says, well, what am I supposed to do? And God says, well, you're going to go to this people, and your words are going to make them deaf, and you're going to make them blind, and you're, you're going to um, help harden their hearts. And so you're going to, your, your prophetic ministry is going to completely fail. Go get them. Right, that's kind of how it goes. And... Uh, and, and, uh, and, and what is it that God says? He says, I want you to go to this people and you're going to be, a, the, pro, you're going to be the, the means by which I harden their hearts. This people. Now, you know Handel's Messiah well enough to know what happens in Isaiah, right? Comfort, comfort, Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort, my people, right? In this kind of covenantal relationship we're here God is saying to Moses, you go down to this people at once. They've, your people, they've acted perversely. And what happens? I mean, God says to Moses, listen, let me destroy all of them. And I will start over with you and I will build a great nation out of you. And again, we can't read too much into this because the narrative doesn't tell us Moses' emotions. But okay, let, let's just be forgiven and play with that for a second. You can imagine, can't you? I don't know what you would have done. I know what I would have done. I've dealt with these people long enough already. That's a good deal. Green light. Let's go. All right. Um, but, he, but, he, but he doesn't do that. Moses intercedes on behalf of them. He prays. Because what is happening here in Exodus chapter 32 in this encounter? We see the promise of the Decalogue being worked out in a very bold and straightforward way. You follow me, there'll be love. If you go after other gods, there'll be wrath. And here it is. And that's what's happening. They followed, they made their other God. And now Moses said, I mean, God says, it's it. They're done. We're going to be done with them. But Moses intercedes on their account. He intercedes on their behalf. And God relents. And then we get this incredible narrative as we go into chapter 33 and chapter 34 where we have the confrontation. There's some other difficult stuff in there that we will sort of bypass this morning. But there's, there's, read this. It's fascinating what goes on. But in the middle of it all, then God says to him in chapter 34, you go and get two more stones. Come on up here again. We're going we're to go through this one more time. But before that, I want you to hear what Moses asks, and it's startling. Moses said to the Lord in chapter 33, See, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know... Whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways 
so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. You hear that? Oh, that's classic. Just before it's in your now, now Moses is saying, consider that this nation is your people, right? Um, he said, My presence will go with you. This is Yahweh saying this, I will give you rest. And he said to him, If you if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. It's a beautiful kind of interaction between Moses and Yahweh. If you're not if you're not going to go with us, then let's just let's just be done with this now. If your presence isn't going to go with us. And then the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. Um, Think back now. What has Moses seen up until this point in the narrative? We've had the burning bush. We've had these incredible displays of God's power with the plagues, with the death of the firstborn. We've seen the sea split open and the people be delivered through it. We've seen God's provision for them in the wilderness with manna. I mean, Moses has seen the display of God's saving grace and His saving power. And what is he asking for here in this encounter? I want to know who you are. I want to know your glory. I want to see your power and your might so that I can walk in your ways and find favor in your sight. And you know what God says? He says, I'll let you. I'm going to let you see who I am. But you can't see me face to face. No one can do that and live. So I'm going to hide you behind a rock. Which we saw in Rock of Ages last week here at Advent. It was beautiful, isn't it? Rock of Ages cleft for me. I'm going to, I'm going to put you, Moses, in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to pass by and you'll be able to see my glory. Just from my back. Now, that's what's going on. Chapter 34. This is where we are going today. So the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I'll write on the tablets the word that were on the former tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the, on the top of the mountain. We're still in this exchange of God revealing His glory to Moses. No one shall come up with you. Do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountains. Do not let flocks or herds graze in front of that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones. He rose early in the morning. He went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. He took in his hand the two tables of stone. And now, fasten your seatbelts. The Lord descended in the cloud. And he stood within there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. This is actually strange. Critical scholars have wrestled with this for, for, I mean, big time. Because the, it goes some, I mean, forgive me for getting a little technical here, but it goes something like this. And the Lord descended, Yahweh descended from, uh, from the mountain. And then he passed by and he proclaimed the name Yahweh. And then he proclaimed the name Yahweh, Yahweh. Who's proclaiming? Who's the one doing the kind of proclaiming the proclamation of the name? And you know enough about English, how English works. For a pronoun to be a pronoun, it has to stand in the place of a noun. And I need an antecedent to know who that pronoun is. And so it's normally, by English grammar, the closest noun that's to the pronoun, right? I mean, sorry. Um, (laughs) There you have this, right? So who is the he that's doing the proclaiming in this moment? The He, to my mind, is without a shadow of a doubt, Yahweh Himself. Here He comes down. He's revealing His glory again to Moses. He's exposing His character and His identity. And how does He do it? He does it by unveiling His name again. 
And he proclaims Yahweh. And he proclaims Yahweh, Yahweh, twice over to show the significance of it. And then he goes on to reveal one of the most beautiful and important characterizations of the divine name of the divine being in all of the Old Testament. Exodus 34, 6-7. Now we're going to see who this Yahweh is. He proclaimed the name Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and he proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty. He visits the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That is an unveiling. That is God Himself expositing for you and for me the significance of His name. Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger, which is a great phrase in Hebrew. He's He's long of nose. His nose doesn't get red too fast. Now that's how the kind of the, the idiom is there. I mean, you know what it's like. Those of you who have children, my nose gets red fast, right? Um, Yahweh's nose. He doesn't get angry quickly. He's he's patient, which actually seems quite bizarre given what we just saw at the with the golden calf. But we have on the far side of the golden calf encounter is now a revelation of the character of God in light of the people's sin and what happens on the far side of their sin. We've seen it in a bald way. They're sinners. They're idolaters at the core. And on the other side of it now, we see the characterization of Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh. Gracious, merciful, kind. The rabbis refer to these 13 attributes of God here as the 13 midot. And they're read out on festival days or on special days before the Torah or the law is proclaimed. I like that tradition. So this is read out in effect to tell the hearers, listen, the God that you're about to hear from, who's about to give you His law, I want you, we want you to know who He is. He's gracious, He's merciful, He's kind, He's patient, He's long-suffering. His chesed goes on to the thousandth. But He by no means clears the guilty. He's severe. So if you think about the way in which these balances are here, it's really a 9 to 4 ratio of these 13 minot. Nine of them emphasizing the mercy and the grace of our God, and then four of them emphasizing His, uh, his severity, the, the, the reality that He's not to be trifled with, that He, he does not look past um, his, own, uh, his own justice. And, and this, is, this is the truth about the God that we have. We cannot separate His love from His justice. We cannot separate His grace from His holiness. We can't say, I'd like that, I really like that part, but I don't really care for that part too much. He comes to us in the totality of who He is as a God who is overwhelming. The, the scales tip greatly in the favor of His mercy and His grace. That is who He is. But He's also just and cannot deny Himself who He is. He is holy. He's not like you and I are. He must take sin seriously. And these medot within the rabbinic tradition, and I think it's very helpful for you and for me as well, are a commentary on the Decalogue. They're a commentary on the Ten Commandments to help us understand the character of the God that has given us these kind of commands. And number two, these 13 medot help us and teach us how to pray. This, this could also, one could call Exodus 34, 6, and 7 the Lord's Prayer of the Old Testament. 
helping us learn how to pray and to address the God who we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is merciful and He is just. And again, we can't help. We can't help as Christian readers of, of a whole Bible to get that kind of characterization of Yahweh that we have here, merciful yet severe, and not move quickly into the person and work of Jesus Christ. It should not surprise us one bit to come to the cross and to see our victim standing there on that cross, hanging between heaven and hell, doing what he's doing. Because what we see at the cross is a full display. A display that blows our hair back because we would never have anticipated it quite like this. That God strikes down His own firstborn Son and raises Him for the sake of the nations. That God strikes down His firstborn Son that He is just. That He must bring a verdict against sin. And yet He does it in a way that's merciful. I mean, there are some today who are really against a substitutionary view of the atonement. And the language that's often used is, you know, this kind of view of the atonement, God pouring out His wrath on Jesus, is um, it's cosmic child abuse. I've heard that, that kind of talk. Right? And from one standpoint, I, I, you know, I, I, can, I can understand what they're saying. I mean, I, I can appreciate that. In other words, they, if, if this is the view that they're espousing, that God is up there on His throne really angry. He's just angry. And so He just needs something to happen. And then Jesus comes... And he presents his own death to Jesus, to God, the God the Father, to assuage this angry, ticked-off deity. I mean, if that's the view, then maybe so. But the cross is a triune act of God's self-disclosure. It is the Father who loves the Son by the Spirit, who has made this eternal covenant within His own self to do this to Himself right, on the cross. It's a great act of love in this display of wrath. It's an overwhelming act, act of love. This is who we have in the book of Exodus. A God who's merciful, a God who's severe, and this is the beauty of the golden calf encounter. A God who does not allow the sin of His people to be the final word. If, if the Decalogue would have been worked out the way in which we'd have anticipated, that would have been it, over. But we recognize in the light of the character of who God is that He's quick to forgive. He's patient. For those who are penitent in heart, you will always meet a gracious and loving Father. Always. That's His character. And that's who He is. And if we don't believe it, we need to run to the cross again and again to see that that's, that's the truth. Well, I think we went too long. But what time are we supposed to let out? All right. Fire away. You want to... Does it bother you that he talks about visiting his uh, wrath on the third and fourth generation of the children? I mean, that sounds like something out of Greek mythology. I mean, what, what are these great kids and they're being punished for something their great-great-grandfather did? Right. And, I, and there's a real debate on what the significance of that visiting on. In other words, is, is, it, is it a kind of retributive justice that's going on here where, you know, your great-grandfather does something and then, you know, the great-grandson is still getting punished for it? I, I don't think that's the core of what's being stated there. I think what the core of what's being stated is that the implications, right, and the consequences of a certain kind of sinful pattern have a long-term effect on the, on the people. But more so, given the context here, is to take that reality seriously. In other words, not to, not to thin it out, 
but to put it into the relationship with that thousandth language that came beforehand. In other words, um, I'll put it to you this way. God is merciful, but His mercy is, it has, a, it has a limit. We see this, for example, in the Minor Prophets with Jonah and the Assyrians and the Ninevites. God is merciful to them. But you go two books. People forget this, right? Jonah, Micah, Nahum. You, got, you, you go two books longer, and God is destroying the Ninevites, right? Um, so I think, you know, one has to wrestle with this. And I don't, I don't want to downplay the significance of um, the force of that, the question that you're asking. But this sort of visiting to the third and the fourth generation, I think, has to do with the fact that sin has these ongoing consequences. But for the repentant, and this is definitely the pl- at play in Exodus, because that's what happens in the chapter right before this. For the repentant, at any point in this generational cycle, there will always be mercy that's there. And there are no good grandchildren. God. Yeah. Although God has to draw them, it, right? Right. I see what you're saying. I'm sorry. I immediately thought about my own grandchildren. I've seen my parents interact with my my mother, who was a strong disciplinarian. You know, now I see her interact with my children. I I, I will look at her and I'll say, I don't know who you are. <laughs> it's like I, you would have never negotiated with me about this ever. Right? I mean, I just don't know who you are. So. Um, Sorry. I was thinking about the blessings and the cursings, you know, when they read, read the law, and the blessings are fantastic, and they're quoted, and then the curses just go on and on and on, and they're just terrible. <laughs> you know, that, I don't know, that really has struck me. And in that case, the curses, you know, it's much longer and much worse. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Um, and again, this is the kind, you know, we're, um, I guess the, the, the implication of your question, though, is how does one then relate that to the character of, of the divine being? In other words, what we had displayed for us in a book like Deuteronomy or, or, within, the, or within the law, the Torah, is this sort of uneven display that you have here with the curses being so elaborative but the blessings not being. And, and I, I had to think about that, actually. But, it, but if that is the case, does that necessarily correspond to a certain kind of ontology, what, what God is? And I would say No. Because the ontology that we have, the being of God, is revealed for us here. This is his character. This is uh, his identity. And his grace is, is triumphant. And if we know any, you know this about the, the whole narrative of the Old Testament. His grace is going to win. It's going to win. Because you talk about some rocky bumps that go on with this engagement with the nation of Israel and then Judah as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's bad. But the bumps are not the final word. And at the end, and we see this in Romans with Paul, don't we? God is going to see through to his covenant despite the failure and the faithlessness of his, of his people. I think this is so, that means something for the nation of Israel, for, for ethnic Israel as well. I should, that, that's a taha topic, but I, I do believe that. I don't think that's been pulled back yet either. I'll, I'll close with this. Did, did you want a fire, fire question? Um, it's personal. I mean, but I don't, I don't live with the sort of bifurcated um, anthropology in this sense. You know, in other words, the intellect, the kind of academic work that I even do, say, in the seminary, I, I try very hard. I'm, I'm not saying I'm successful, but at least on paper, I would say 
that is all wrapped up in my affections. In other words, the light of the intellect and the heat of the affections I would hope would be in a symbiotic relationship and not compartmentalized. I go do my academic stuff. Here's a little Hebrew, a little Greek, a little whatever, and then I, and then I pray. You know, I, I, I think that has led to some dire consequences in the life of the church. So when I say that, when I, it's an, it is both an academic and a very personal, spiritual, emotional thing. We're whole people, right? And one of the failures of my tradition, the Reformed tradition, one of the failures there is to pr- give sort of a primacy to the intellect, right? But our intellect is too wrapped up with our emotions and our willing that they mutually enforce one another. We're not walking brains, you know, despite what Descartes said, right? We're not, we're not walking brains. We're, we're not just sort of thinking selves. There is, and this is what I do like about the romantics and the history of ideas. There was always this kind of counter-influence against enlightenment and rationalist thinkers to say, hey, 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 uh, we got feelings going on here. Right? I mean, what about, the, what about the intuitive? What about art and expression? And um, So I th- hopefully all that's wrapped up in our minds and our affections and that they mutually, they mutually feed one another. Yeah. That's a good question, though, um, because it, you know, a certain kind, and I know you all, and I like this about being at the Advent. There's a certain kind of exchange that goes on here um, you know, that's not going to happen in every kind of church. I get that. I'm, I'm around enough to know that. But hopefully the kind of exchange that we have on any kind of theological or biblical level, that you know that that's taking place with a deep concern for the affections in all of us. And when I teach at Beeson Divinity School, I, mean, I, I'll, I'll, I tell this to my students, I'm not here just to sort of transfer information to you. I want you. I want to change you, right? And so this is going to be a live encounter that we're going to have. It's not just me sort of downloading facts. You can go to, you know, you can go to iTunes U for that if you want that. That wasn't on the page, but, well, we were all over the place today. A little bit like a mouth to a fire hydrant. I'm sorry about that. Um, but we'll, we'll see you next week, and we'll, and we'll press on.